the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. We tend to talk a lot about what the future of shipping will look like in 2050, what the fuels will be, what the ships need to do, and how trade lanes and business models are going to need to rapidly adapt. But we don't talk enough about the people at the heart of this revolution, the seafarers. Without a skilled, agile, well-trained workforce, this clean energy transformation of shipping that we are all expecting to happen is going to be stifled, and the rapid and smooth conduct of global trade will be put at risk. Now, the powers that be are gathering in Manila next week to consider the elements required for a successful transformation of seafarers' roles to meet the needs of shipping in the future. So we're talking on the podcast this week about, yes, training and recruitment, but we're also addressing the risks to shipping and global trade inherent in the industry transformation and the investments and changes that will need to be made to ensure that there are going to be sufficient numbers of skilled seafarers available to fulfil the needs of the industry. Now, that's going to require a little bit of politics, so I'm going to introduce you to the former Mexican Secretary of Energy in a few minutes, as somebody who's dealt firsthand with difficult transitions. But I want to start off this week a little bit closer to home. Gerardo Borromeo is the chief executive of Philippines Transmarine Carriers Group. Now, for those of you who don't know, they're one of the largest providers of crew globally. At any one time, they've got close to around 40,000 people out on the water. So he's very much at the centre of the discussions we talk about in this week's podcast. But his entirely valid point is that we need to make sure that we don't leave the human element out of the equation when we're talking about these changes that we need to make to the industry. What kind of a vessel and what kind of an operation will we want to have which combines man, man and machine? What is the best interface that will allow us to deliver that? And we know that the world has more and more moved towards a carbonless uh, scenario in an environment. So that transition starts with the hardware. And we know that that hardware journey is going to take a while. But we also know that the journey for the human element is going to also take a bit of time. And this is because we have to look at the human side of things from several perspectives. One, let's start with the fact that we can build a ship in less than three years, from planning to launch. It still takes 10 years to develop the master or chief engineer that is going to be on that ship. So that imbalance in time already introduces a level of difficulty that we have to deal with in terms of timing and selection. But more importantly, we have to look at at the situation 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, because these assets do last a lifetime and more. So the question is, we do have a group of people who are working currently making up the international workforce on board these vessels. And that numbers anywhere between 1.8 and 1.9 million positions, depending on how, uh, which vessels we count. We're going to need that number more or less over the next many years. And the question is, how do we prepare them, the next generation, for the new transition? And this goes to a point that you had mentioned earlier, Richard, which is who needs to come to the table in order to be able to craft the solutions? And oftentimes, the discussions tend to uh, focus on the hardware, because the hardware, uh, you have lots of zeros in them, billions and billions and billions of dollars. But between uh, the hardware and the systems that run the hardware and, and the policies that govern the way these systems and hardware work, you have 
the human element. And we need to make sure that we do not leave the human element out of the equation. And for many years, uh, my involvement with Intermanager, for example, I had always urged that part of the roundtable should consider, and by the roundtable, I'm talking about the major um, uh, organizations that come together. That's ICS, BIMCO, Intertanko, and Intercargo. That part of a discussion with the roundtable should involve groups like Intermanager. Because you do need the ship managers and the crew managers to be able to be part of an equation so that we are all moving in the same direction at the same speed. And not only should we have charterers and owners and ship managers and crew managers at the table, we need the shipbuilders, we need the equipment uh, manufacturers, we need class we need the academic institutions that are putting all these together. We need to come together so that the discussions take place in a manner that is more consistent and will reflect the fact that we are working today for today, but we need to work today for tomorrow. And that is very, very important, especially as we now are faced with hard decisions, uh, looking at this transition, for example. If you look at the Philippine perspective, the Philippines has served for many years as a seafaring capital. And the question I often get uh, asked is, will the Philippines run out of seafarers? Well, we're a population of 117 million people today. By the year 2050, which is uh, less than 27 years from now, we're going to reach 150 million, if not more. Last year, our population grew by 1.8 million people. This year, 1.5 million people are looking for jobs. They're going to be coming into the workforce. So I don't think we're going to be short of numbers. But what we need to do is make sure that we can have a share of mind and a share of voice in the next generations to encourage people to consider that a career in the shipping industry, starting with a career at sea, is a very noble activity. And part of that is the image that we need to craft. And, and oftentimes, perhaps, we have been uh, fallen short of that compared to, say, the aviation industry, because shipping is largely a business-to-business -business undertaking, whereas Aviation is a people-to-people -people business. So we need to be able to do a much more to the extent that we can to carve out a way for, for the image of a seafarer, whom we like to refer to as a global maritime professional, to change. Well, that seems like a good point to introduce my second guest this week. Leonardo Beltran is, amongst many other things, the former Deputy Secretary for Planning and Energy Transition in Mexico. So he's one of the few people that can give a first-hand account of the efforts that are actually required to transition a workforce to renewable trades. Dito's just set out in some detail the nature of the problems ahead for seafarers, but Leonardo offers a really useful political context to that debate. Let, let me point to the fact that um, whatever we envision the sector is, uh, the opportunity it would be amazing. So if we believe that we will need to at least double the amount of people that would be needed by 2050, that requirement would imply that we need 30,000 new seafarers uh, to be added to the labor market. And that in real terms means, for instance, for the Philippines, the seafarers bring to the economy of the Philippines 1.8% of its uh, GDP only on remittances. So uh, the opportunity is not only about the talent, 
but also about the value that the seafarers bring to the economy. Certainly developing uh, individual uh, people into uh, be trained and to have the opportunity to be much more productive. It's an opportunity for the shipping sector. But the value associated to that seafarer is uh, amazing. It creates um, synergies with uh, other sectors. It creates, it creates induced um, development. And certainly, and, and let me uh, add a complement to what Dieter just mentioned. Uh, there's no uh, future in the shipping sector without talent. And that's the role and the value of the seafarers. Uh, and as, as you rightly pointed out, Richard, uh, today it's uh, rather difficult to, to see, uh, you know, what's the actual value of uh, seafarers. And um, as of today, this new report that we would be uh, publishing uh, next week with the Institute of the Americas, it's uh, to allow to give a little bit of uh, light into the matter and uh, offer some uh, policy uh, proposals or suggestions, recommendations on how to strengthen uh, the seafarer trade and certainly embrace the fact that without talent, there's no future for the shipping sector. Remittances from, from the, the, the maritime sector almost hit $7 billion uh, against what uh, a GDP of about $395 billion. Uh, so yeah, that's about 1.8%. And if you add the total remittances of our Filipino diaspora, that probably comes close to between 8 and 9%. But when you break down that number, what's interesting is that uh, if we look at the number of Filipinos involved in remitting close to $7 billion, that comes from something like about 450,000 full-time equivalent positions. So when you do the division and you look at, um, say, $7 billion divided by 450, that's in the vicinity of sixteen dollars to $17,000 per person per year. And that's on the average. If you look at a, an officer who can earn eight, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 per month, uh, working eight months of the year, that is a significant uh, jump in terms of what they would earn compared to earning locally. And and against what is it? Our per capita income uh, is about $3,800. So there is a significant financial gain. Then I was thinking that aside from remittances, one of the stories we probably need to tell is what is the economic value of a Filipino seafarer contributing to global trade? And if I have my figures right, and please correct me, the value of global trade was about $25 trillion in 2022, just the trade side alone. So if we take 25%, because that represents the, the contribution of uh, Filipinos to the total pool, take 25% of uh, 25, you're way over $5 trillion, close to $6 trillion. And when you look at $6 trillion as attributable value compared to what our economy has produced or produced in, in 2022 of about $395 billion, it's a significant, if it, it's a significant chunk. And there is a story, I think, that needs to be told there. And part of that I look at because of the interest to attract the next generation to come into this, into this industry.
But I'm very interested to see the results of that, that report and, and to see how the Philippine government can learn from something of that nature and use it as part of the narrative to encourage next generations to consider this industry uh, from the financial benefits that it can provide. There is one fact, and that fact is that as of today, there has not been a focus on understanding what's the economic value of seafaring. And in the report that we are about to issue next week, we uh, took a look at some other cases, including uh, the Philippines, uh, UK and the, and the US, and the, even Malaysia, uh, to understand what uh, is the value that the talent, the seafaring, uh, seafarers bring to, to the industry. And as we were discussing with uh, Dito, uh, for instance, um, Seafarer brings to, to the table around four times as much uh, revenue or income to the Philippine economy than a typical worker. So uh, that's a very attractive opportunity for uh, a regular Filipino or uh, any other uh, institution uh, or any other uh, jurisdiction. The other point that I wanted to make is that uh, in this future that we see up to 2050, if we are only to meet uh, the uh, targets for trade, the maritime sector would have to add around a thousand new vessels to the global fleet, fleet every year. And that means to add also at least 30,000 new seafarers to the labor market. So there would be ample opportunity to, uh, to have more Filipino, let's say, if we uh, assume that it, uh, it has the same breakdown as today, that would imply that uh, there's uh, 7,500 opportunities for Filipino citizens to come into the sector. And it would be attractive because of, um, you know, the income uh, income today and in the future that this would bring. It would be attractive because it um, the new business model, the business model of the net zero world would have, uh, would be attractive because of the challenges uh, in adopting new technologies in creating new transport technology, new travel modes, in reducing the uh, greenhouse gas intensity of fuels, in becoming much more energy efficient. And that's uh, an opportunity certainly for seafarers to be part of that new model, but also to create synergies with uh, academia and uh, scientists and the producers of knowledge and technology that would help in feeding this new business model of uh, the shipping sector. It would be an opportunity not only to seafarers, but also, you know, in, in the public sector, uh, they would have to create new regulation. They would have to create new laws. And certainly these would be trickling down to other sectors to promote that, um, you know, the, the uh, business model of a net zero world. So I think the outlook for the CFR labor force under a zero emissions business model is uh, vibrant. 
the sector has never experienced a change of this scale and speed with so many forces creating positive feedback loops. So uh, we really need to pay attention only to what are the challenges uh, today. And those challenges certainly are job security, health concerns, and uh, opportunities to bring a career development to a dearth of potential workers. So um, I think the future today, as we see it, is uh, positive. It's of um, perfect opportunity for the Filipino citizens or uh, any other seafaring uh, feeder uh, to come to the table to take that uh, advantage and at uh, percentages of uh, points of gross domestic product to their economies by engaging new talent, new research and development, and new opportunities for each of the economies. The numbers that Leonardo mentions in that report, they're important because the context here is what happened during the pandemic. COVID saw the vast majority of seafarers effectively stuck aboard ships. Now, that was an anomaly, but it also pointed to the lack of political clout that the industry had to leapfrog above other issues. And seafarers and shipping generally were way down the list of priorities. And the crisis that was created was one of bureaucracy. Effectively, we couldn't get the health departments talking to the transport departments and the ports and everybody was left confused. The result was that seafarers were essentially abandoned for a while. So I wonder... Do these numbers that make clear the economic value of seafarers, do they get seafarers and shipping higher up the political agenda? So I definitely think that this is an all-hands-on-deck, meaning that we need uh, an alignment of public policy, an alignment of the government, certainly, an alignment of the, the industrial sector, and an alignment of talent. If there is no way that we can actually bring to the table all these different stakeholders, then the future would be a missed opportunity for the shipping sector. And, you know, government uh, really need to uh, embrace these opportunities because of uh, certainly... Uh, the taxes that would be associated with uh, a vibrant industry, but also because, uh, you know, politicians respond to uh, development. And the shipping sector is about development. So uh, we really need to have all people on board. Uh, and that's uh, a, a requisite that, that we really need. Then certainly the... Other interactions from the uh, from the international community, like the promotion of uh, a global tar- carbon market, that would create also another opportunity because it will force to align to the international architecture, and that would bring opportunities again to all the different uh, stakeholders. You need to uh, bring this new technology to align to that new normal. You need to bring a, an upskill and reskill, as uh, Dito was saying, uh, the seafarers 
to be able to compete in a net zero world, you really need to have uh, an attractive uh, labor conditions if you are not to lose those people to other sectors. So uh, you really need to start paying attention and certainly uh, adjust your local conditions to be able to embrace that net zero world for the shipping sector. No, well, taking off uh, from what Leonardo says, it definitely requires an all hands on deck approach. I fully agree. If there's a lesson that is learned from this last pandemic, it is that when either companies or institutions or associations or maybe even countries thought about what they call business continuity plans, they never really thought about creating contingency plans based on a global pandemic. They have always created contingency plans based on what immediately surrounds them. And if you think about the importance of, say, seafaring, for example, the Maritime Labor Convention, which is one of the most successful ILO conventions, which brought together uh, how many, I think it was over 60 different previous labor conventions under one uh, in, instrument, uh, and is the fourth pillar of governance for the maritime industry. The, the, the Maritime Labor Convention basically assured the free movement of seafarers from country to country. It's the facilitated movement, full stop. But we never considered when putting the Maritime Labor Convention in place or any other governance instruments that a global pandemic could stop short uh, the free movement of people. And when your departments of health, who were never brought into a discussion with uh, a, 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 a more global, uh, for example, a more global business continuity plan, when they said, hey, uh, this is a global pandemic. We don't know what we're dealing with. We don't have a cure for it. We just know that people are dying. We have to close our borders. That stopped everything. And even assuming that we could allow crew to get off at certain ports, the question is, how do they get home, considering that the airline industry shut down, essentially? So what we need to think about are and, and we need to think of complex situations like a global pandemic from a systems approach and identify what are the different complex issues that, that will prevent the system from performing its task. So the, well, the question you pose is, are seafarers too far down the rank? Um, I think can be better addressed if we understand how the whole system works and what is the contribution of a seafarer or what I like to refer to as a global maritime professional or simply a maritime professional in all of this. You've got the tonnage providers, you've got the tonnage, and they will work as long as you have the talent, the competent talent, as Leonardo pointed out, to make that happen. And what we need to wrap around the whole thing is review the protocols that we have to allow for the free movement of goods and services and people who run these. So the essential workers, the key workers, which is what the United Nations de described uh, as, as, as some of these very, very important uh, roles that need to be played, um, just reflect the fact that our, our, while we are a robust global uh, uh, situation or state, we're very fragile when it comes to certain elements that just throw us out of kilter. And we do not have anything in our in our con business continuity plans that allow for that connectivity to occur. So I think if we address that connectivity, then we will address really how do we deal with the elements that make things run like people. And as I said, even if we could allow the, the seafarers to get off 
in any particular port? How do they get home if you don't have the global connectivity that the airline industry provides? So going forward, I have suggested that between the IMO and the ILO, they need to bring ICAO into the picture. They need to bring the WHO into the picture. And we now have to start thinking about these complex uh, situations because our, 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 the world is so intertwined that we can no longer think about an issue locally. It really has to be global, and we need to play those scenarios out from what happened. And, and what we're told is, let's not wait for the next 99-year event to happen. It could happen around the corner, and are we better prepared? And the discussions that need to bring both air, land, and sea into the equation, they still have to come into play because so many other events, say the crisis in Europe uh, and, and all other issues that are are, 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 are befuddling the world. They, they tend to take center stage. So uh, I hope that that helps. It's not the fact that the seafarers are too far down. It's just that the way we're trying to put solutions into play don't have the all hands on deck approach that Leonardo is suggesting. That's where we're going to leave it this week, slightly longer than usual. But I felt it was an important enough conversation that needed an audience. Both Dito and Leonardo are going to be out in Manila at the International Chamber of Shipping's conference on seafaring uh, Monday. So I suspect that at least some of you can catch them there, along with several other very interesting speakers. We're going to be back next Friday with a special edition of the podcast offering a status report on shipping's decarbonisation revolution in advance of MEPC 80. Yes, I know. Look, don't worry. I know you're being overwhelmed by MEPC 80 reports right now, but I promise... This one is going to be worth your time and hopefully we'll cut through the noise that you're getting elsewhere. Anyway, my thanks to Dito uh, and Leonardo for today's edition and thank you for listening.